Welcome to Create Great. This podcast series features conversations with creative people from different backgrounds, from different disciplines, and different schools of thought. Thank you for choosing to listen. This podcast is hosted by me, David Bennett, Creative Director of APX Studio and Curator of Visual, an online showcase. The best creatives will always strive to create something great, and I wanted to explore how they go about this what it means to them, their clients, and what it means to our wider society too. My guests are individuals whose work I've admired and often featured over the years on Visual. but I wanted to create this podcast to get to know the real people behind their creative work. I'll be asking questions about their own unique stories of how they got to where they are now, how much of it was perseverance and determination, or how much of it was just plain luck, and how do they go about creating something great? This is a chance to explore what drives these talented individuals or their studios to create great. My guest today is Joy Nazari. Joy is the founder of DN Co, a brand and design consultancy inspired by culture and place. DN Co work closely with corporate clients, museums, and neighborhoods. Joy not only runs DN Co, but has a tech startup called Sewear and a publishing imprint called Place Press. Joy is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and a trustee designed Southeast. Where do you get the time to do all of that, Joy? It's insane. Well, and I'm a mum, which... Oh, you know, of course. Let's not underestimate that uh, full-time job, which I feel like I'm always neglecting. But yes, uh, I don't know where I get the time. I, I, wish, I wish I had more. But uh, you know what they say, Dave, if you want something done, ask a busy person. And of course, the real answer is... And um, I've got a great team around me, and that's that's absolutely where where the real work happens. Uh, so absolutely, very, very, very cool to them. absolutely. So uh, what I like to do is really just jump back to the beginning, because you know, looking through things, just finding out really why and when you founded DNNCO, and that qu- probably question you always get. We kind of get at OPX. What what do the initials DNNCO actually stand for? Yeah, that's those heady heady days. So. I was sitting next to um, my co-founding business partner, Ben Dale, and we were in our former agency and we already, we already knew we were going to leave. And I typed it out in you know, some big, chunky Helvetica in Word because I'm not a graphic designer, DN ampersand CO. So that was Dale, Nazari and company. Gotcha. And, and I just sort of looked over to him and went, huh, this one, doesn't this look good? And, um, and that's, that's kind of literally how, how, how it happened. I mean, all of us who work in, in the industry and have anything to do with naming know that naming is really, really hard. <laughs> but that's, that was, it was us plus company, and we really wanted to have a collaborative, a, collab- a name that sort of insinuated collaboration. So that was, that was really key, key for us Thanks. when we started. Excellent. And it's interesting, um, when I was talking to Paul on the first one about how he made that jump from owning his own well working for someone then to own their own thing how was that because did you just leave without clients or was it like okay what are we going to do how you know where we're going to be based that's a big undertaking it was phenomenal looking back and really um i look back and think of it as a sort of rebellious teenage act it was a mode of i mean we were we were really young and I think we were looking at the situation we were in in our former agency. Almost all of our work was in New York, and we thought, oh, you know, let's 
let's move this business to New York. We, you know, we, we don't have, Ben had a young family. I, I didn't have kids yet. And it's sort of like, we can move to New York. And the two of us, Ben and I had 20% of the equity of this company. And the majority of shareholders said, no, I really, I really want to just do work in London. And so we, I suppose that was the first fissure for us where we started to think, you know, hey, maybe we should do this on our own. Mm -hmm. And so we started by trying to do a management buyout, which at the time felt incredibly grown up. And then as it turns out, over a couple of beers, we it sort of dawned on us, you know, what are we buying here? What are we buying? We're buying ourselves. Let's just go around the corner and, and give it a go on our own, on our own backs. And so it was kind of a, an, a young act of, of rebellion. And we felt pretty rebellious at the time. We felt like we're going to do this really differently. And we were, I think, brave and foolish in equal measures and uh, ironically, as it turned out, wanting to do all our work in the U.S., all of our work ended up being in London. But anyway, until recently, so so that that really um, that really has uh, has has taken that long to to have the New York dream come true. But it's it is, it is now. Wow. And uh, can I ask who the first client was? That what, the first bit of work? Can you remember that far back? Yes, I mean, I, I definitely can. And there were there were a couple simultaneous things. We were really lucky. A, a very dear friend of mine was doing some freelance work for the chap who started Now That's What I Call Music. And he obviously made his money and then um, became a, a residential, luxury residential um, real estate developer. And she said, hey, I think you guys sort of do business in this and I'm doing this quirky work and it's in Switzerland. And do you want to brand this company? And I was in my front room Ben was, I think, at the end of his gardening leave, and I just said, yes, of course, heck yes, we want to do that. And at the same time, we, a, an old client of ours had called and said, hey, I've got this other client, and do you, want to, do you want to come and meet them? And when we sat down with them, they said, are you even incorporated as a business? Like, do you have a lawyer? And so it was, it was really interesting. We started out of my front room in Balham, and it was incredible fun you know we had no overheads and mm -hmm. we're gonna give this a go and it didn't take long before we got our first studio and made a fail and things just built built from there great so was design and branding always part of your life you know um i i, I get in a, a sense that you're not from london the accent so it'd be interesting to know oh design and brand. was it a young age or was there something that you thought actually this could be interesting. It's, I would say, I mean, absolutely. First, firstly, um, the accent is is American. Although most Americans would say it's yeah. fairly mid Atlantic now. I've been in the UK for twenty one years. Wow, whereabouts in the states? San Francisco. So I'm a Bay Area girl, but um, was born in Brazil. So I have you know this big sort of global city experience. I've lived in a lot of really interesting cities. Lived in Italy for a year. And uh, my parents and my grandparents are a mix of South American and European. So I suppose one of the major influences for me was, was this world dynamic, this global mm -hmm. city hopping family. And yeah. uh, my family are literally all over the place, Africa, South America, America, New Zealand, and Holland and Italy and more. So I suppose urbanism is very interesting. And that was a major, major influence for me very early on. And it took me a while to discover that. And I'd say the creative side was an influence that I had from, a, from an early age, but perhaps it took me a little while to discover that. So I grew up without a TV, which in the U.S. is 
pretty wild. Mm. And it really forced me as an almost pseudo only child. My, my brothers are eight and 10 years older. Spent a lot of time at home needing to fill the hours. And I think that led me to having a really sort of creative brain and problem solving and doing things and making things and creating ways to entertain me. At the same time, I had two major creative women in my life who influenced me. One was my mother, who worked in the original SS Klamath boat, which for people who know Landor, that was their original headquarters in San Francisco. So oh, okay. yeah. they were um, actually on this incredible boat. And um, I met Walter Landor um, various times as a kid and went to his house in Napa. And so I had this branding influence throughout my life. So my mother was many years at Landor and then for many years at Addison after that. And simultaneously, my grandmother was at Berkeley getting her master's in art in, the, in her 60s. And so I had this, these creative influences around me, but I wasn't necessarily going for design in, in my career. I was much more interested in, in business, funnily enough, which was probably an influence from the male uh, side of my family, father, brothers. And so I studied business economics and I was really interested in just the business side right. of the working world generally. So my, my career started in investment banking and then I went into the tech boom and then started a technology company in the real estate space. And that's how I fell backwards into becoming a really stupidly young managing director of a design consultancy. But it was the first place where I just thought, this is absolutely where I want to be problem solving through creativity, through visual design, through aesthetics, and through strategic thinking, you know, adding the urbanism element, which I'm so passionate about generally, you know, that it all came together, technology, finance, urbanism and design for me all bundled up into my career. And yeah. I think that weird multidiscipline sort of experience has, has massively helped me in connecting with clients. I'm definitely, definitely at home in this industry um, now after 20 years. Yeah, because I was going to say the urbanism is, I think what's been really interesting with Dean and Co, and, you know, and I have featured you a fair bit over the years yeah. on uh, <laughs> Visual. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's fantastic work. I always remember the concrete cube with the 23 on it. Yeah, I always remember that. And I tell you a, a story, actually. I was at Bostock and Pollitt at the time. And I think I emailed, it must have been the other partner, just like out of curiosity, love that, could ask where you got it made. And he actually sent me back the details. And I thought, that's just so nice that he's shared. He wasn't being, you know, oh, it's our, it's how we did it. It's it's ours and that's it. But I think what I've noticed over the years is this sense of the placemaking. So is that where the urbanism and has that been a sort of strategic shift for DNA and Co to kind of own that that landscape of neighbourhood placemaking and and. and all of that, that's really something I've, I, I've noticed and I wondered if you could talk about that. For sure. So firstly, I remember who we got that stone carved out of as well. I think we had to send it somewhere down to Dorset or even further Cornwall. I can't remember. It was Portland Stone. Yeah. It was a lovely piece of work. And I'm not surprised at all that Ben shared the details with you. And I think that is a lot of the ethos here at Dianico. We're very sherry. So mm -hmm. we, we, we love to be open with, with people. So that, that's a nice that's a really nice memory. In terms of the urbanism and placemaking side, has it been, you know, a, I suppose a particular strategic direction? You know, absolutely. I would say we started 
in a lot of ways in a fairly unsexy market, which is the sort of real estate world, the sell side of the real estate world. Like, do you, do you want to buy an office space? Do you want to buy a, an apartment? Do you want to buy a retail space? And what we've done out of that, I would say in our early years, we were just creating I think really great design and thinking for for an area that actually had some pretty, pretty ugly work going on, if I'm frank. The idea of brand was very poorly conceived. Mm -hmm. And so I think we were able to to help an area that was transacting at very high values, but actually really creating and adding um, a lot to that. That industry has has massively um, improved and developed over the years. What we've done with Dianenko is started to concentrate more on having an impact on the you know pieces of city, and we are determined to to continue to have an impact on that. For us, there is perhaps no greater sort of B to C project you can work on than a piece of city, a piece of the world that you can actually walk through and experience. And we do a lot of work with our clients to help structure narratives of places even before architects get on board before planning is even submitted so we're affecting the world around us and i think all of us really enjoy that as a creative canvas and of course it then translates into all the things that we love branded entity um, creating physical things and making so all of those things are, are, are really great we have made some i think really determined logical steps out of that placemaking as well. Um, as a studio, we're very culturally motivated. So we're interested in all sorts of areas of culture and do a lot of cultural things as a studio, which uh, we love. And it was a natural extension to say, if what we're doing as a, as a studio is connecting human beings and places together and trying to draw some unique narratives and, and ideas for particular places in order to create and affect communities around a, a particular place you know can we can we pull that through mm-hmm. and start to develop a bigger portfolio in the cultural sector so that was a very clear strategic step we made and you know it's it's hard working in the cultural sector it's not particularly in fact it's not profitable <laughs> i think it's pretty fair to say but what it does for us as a studio is it, it's it just it fuels our souls right so we're, we're 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 enjoying that and it gives us um yeah yeah it just gives us a ton of reason to, to to come to work so we're really enjoying enjoying the cultural sector development i think the work you, that you've done uh dig beth and other places uh, fantastic and i suppose part of that as well the, the, the amount of stakeholder engagement as well because if you are doing a community or, or a part of what, whatever that community is, or a borough, whatever, you must must undertake a wealth of stakeholder engagement, so many opinions about why you're doing it and, and taking them on that journey. I was going to say, have there been any sort of magic moments and any sort of, oh dear, maybe we can't do that after all? Well, I, I think that stakeholder engagement side is is something we've had to, over the years, get really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if, I, if I look back at like my junior years in my career, I think we were really into like hiding our ideas and then having a big ta-da moment. Yeah. And, and actually, that's crap and that rarely works. I think what we, what we have realized is the more you can engage people in that process, not just the client side, not just the key sort of stakeholders, but even the guy and gal on the ground. Yeah. And our clients are so often very terrified of that. 
and they embrace it only in so much as they want to be able to say that they've done it. But actually, we've really brought our clients around to saying, you know what, let's actually sit shoulder to shoulder with the guy and the gal on the ground and and understand really deeply what what their their needs are. And some of our most, I think, riveting kind of outcomes have come from the most unusual, unusual places. Um, so we have one that I really love. It, it feels kind of insignificant, but it was, it was, it felt profound at the time, certainly, was working with Sidi Khan and Roxana Fiaz, the two mayors of London and Newham, uh, on the Royal Docks. And we did a lot of local engagement. And we sat in one in North Woolwich, you know, a fairly, really pretty poor part of London. And we sat with a, a community group and one chap just looked at us and he just said oh god you know you're just the the next guys to come down here and have a look at the royal docks and poke around and brand it and give us a Mm -hmm. vision and a master plan but you're the 78 to come along and do this story like this is bs and it was such a great challenge these people you know they were so disillusioned after years and years and years of promises that actually you realize that you have such a responsibility to deliver something real and to not just be like, happy, clappy, colorful, life is going to be great. And, you know, for a lot of people, they're looking at you saying, you know what, life is not going to be great. I, I have to get on three buses to get to the doctor. So uh, it's, it's, I think sitting shoulder to shoulder with people on the ground is, is, is yeah, profound parts of, of projects and, a lot of really deep insights have come from these yeah. things. And I suppose the beauty really of what you're doing has that benefit and impact really, doesn't it? On people's lives, be it, you know, a, a nicer place to, to live and things like that. Absolutely. I always think with what we do creatively, we're, we're lucky. It's, it's great when we can do it. Um, and there are good parts and bad parts of the project. What's the best part of the project for yourself? And then what's sort of the worst part and, any major mishaps apart from maybe uh, someone saying it's, it's all BS? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. So I think for me, the best and the worst are two sides of the same coin. And it's about ambition generally. I think for me, the best, the best part of a project is when you, you, you gel with a client and together you can look at a situation and say, you know what, we can do something really, really interesting here. And everyone's very excited, fizzing with excitement and a little bit nervous, like, oh my gosh, this is this is so good, it's a little bit terrifying. And I I really like that. I think that's I think that's the most for me, the best part of a project is when people say, Oof, this is that's a big shout, guys. But if we could achieve that, wouldn't it be amazing what the outcome would be? And we have a lot of this is so exciting it's scary moments, which I, mm-hmm. I really adore. And I would say for me, that's the absolute best part of the project. We try very hard to get everyone on that page really early on. And so the the, the flip side is is exactly the opposite, right? I think for me, um, if a client and, and I have had, uh, we, we have an inside joke here at the studio, which is, oh, come on, Joy, I just want an easy life. That for me is the worst part of a project is when, when a client gives up on ambition and possibility mm-hmm. and opportunity. And we try, we, try, we try quite hard to weed out clients that could have the potential to be like that. I think they self-select away from DN and Co anyway, because we're quite hard work. <laughs> we want right. to have an impact and create great stuff and have amazing outcomes and surprise 
the world, surprise ourselves as much as, as much as we can within the remit of what we're trying to do. So as soon as we have people who are like, oh, come on, I'm just, I, just, I just want an easy life. This, is, this, this should be pretty straightforward. And for me, I, my, heart, my heart dies a little bit with that. I sort of think how many people in the private sector, in the public sec- sector have these unbelievable jobs, especially with urbanism. Um, and I just think, wow, you know, you have such a potential to create impact and if you get the right collaborative team together, can you imagine what we could do here, how phenomenal it could be? So I would say that those are the two things that stand out for me, the best, best and worst potential part. Yeah, excellent. And I suppose I'm actually going to sort of circle back a bit and talk about the place press, because I think I've even bought one of your books about placemaking. (laughs) But I suppose, was that born out of a passion for everything you've learned and all the work kind of that catalogued as well? So it's like, how can we share that? Is that why that was set up? Well, so firstly, I'm going to out myself as someone who just really enjoys setting up businesses. That's an important context to to right. sort of set up. I, I, I enjoy the idea of starting stuff. So, and, and I'm willing to give things a punt. So the history of that, uh, of Place Press generally, was it all started with Otto Eicher. And we wanted, we have a, a gallery space in the bottom of our studio, and we wanted to hold an exhibition. And one of our designers had the great idea, hey, why don't we bring a bunch of the Otto Eicher posters over from Switzerland and we, we can basically, there's one guy who, we, one guy who collects them and we, we knew we could bring this and do a show. And so it started as a, this Otto Eicher show here in London, posters that had never been shown before. And then it was like, oh, hey, like, should we do a really little catalog for you know, for the show and so that people have something to take away. And I thought, God, you know, we, we love, we love this. We love Isney so much. We love Otto Liker and what he did at Isney. Why don't we just write a book about it? Because, um, you know, there, 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 there isn't one that we um, could see at the time that we thought that was in print that we, we, that, we that covered the extent of what we wanted to cover about Otto Liker's Isney. And so it was like, oof, we're creating a book. Here we go. Let's create a book. And I just said, you know what? If we're creating a book, like, let's just create an imprint because wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> and so there we go. Like, it was two months later. I think, you know, we were designing a book. We were printing a book. We were starting a, an imprint called Place Press, designing an identity for the imprint. Um, and it, it kind of became a creative arm to Dan & Co., basically um, for passion projects. So I can't yeah. pretend for a second that it's profitable. It's it's decidedly not, but it's it's a ton of fun. We enjoy making books. So we've done Otto Liker's Isney. And then not much lo- later, we did Roberto's Rio and Roberto Burlamarque's being um, one of my design heroes. He's a landscape architect in Brazil who just had the most phenomenal history himself. And, and uh, we created a really lovely book uh, by him. And we've done a ton of other things through that vehicle. Um, and we're just, we're just, you know, we're thinking now about what our next idea is because we really enjoy creating books. And yeah, Place Press is a great outlet for us creatively. But the, the central thesis of Place Press is people and, you know, how they culturally influence places. That was, that's the origin story of, of Place Press. Yeah, I'm actually I'm on there right now, just looking at it, and it's, it's, it looks great. You sold out the uh, Isney book. The Disney book um, is sold out. We're thinking about a reprint, so uh, watch oh, this space. Do. 
2022 yes. edition. And do you write it or do you bring in, uh, or is it more of a, um, like a curation kind of thing? You bring in people to write it and researchers, or is it a pure studio project? Oh, I'm, I'm very proud to say it's 100% Deanne and co-made. Oh, well done. So we, we bring in, I should say we bring in photographers, but all written and designed in-house uh, by, by Deanne and co. So that's, 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 yeah, obviously it overtakes the studio for a piece of piece of time. But yes, a lot of many hands involved. In fact, the back of all those books have quite a few thank yous <laughs> of people people involved. But we had a team of four, Dianenko, who went and spent a week in Disney interviewing a bunch of people, at the archive there and um, I think in the mayor's office and lots of things. So literally went in situ. I got to be one of uh, four who went to Rio for a week. Only, only slightly, uh, <laughs> only slightly selfish. I've still got family there, you know. So that was that was that was great fun. But you know, these these are, these are, I have to say the the Rio trip was a, I easily top five career highlight to be able to see archival drawings of Roberto Berlimarque's designs for the pavements all along Copacabana and Rio. Just the art was incredible, and it's been fantastic. Yeah, it looks a fantastic book. I might have to. Uh, get my credit card out um so we're going to break it up now with what i call the quick fire round just to relax us all a bit i'll ask two things and you just give me the answer okay print or digital oh i can't answer that one quickly and i'm going to tell you why Uh, because the pandemic has killed print so oh uh, it's so and you know what i think this this, I want to get the name Roy Killen in right now. Anyone who knows him will know what I'm talking about. Push print. Push print. One of yeah. the desperate casualties of the pandemic. You know, if any man deserved to still be in business, it's that man. So my heart absolutely breaks for print and for everyone who was just destroyed in that industry. But, you know, if I had to pick print or digital for business, oh, I just am desperately sad to say it would be digital. All right. Okay. Um Coke or Pepsi? Coke. <laughs> Interesting. Apple or Android? Apple or Android. Oh, uh, Apple. Uh, there you yeah. go. BBC or Netflix? Hmm. Oh, golly. I'm trying to think about what my habits would be. Gosh, I think it's probably pretty 50-50 with those two. Mm. And last one, Rothko or Pollock? Definitely Rothko. Yeah, every given Tuesday. I had a feeling you might yeah. say that. I thought, I thought yeah, you might he's say one that. of my absolute favorites. Yeah. I have this warm glow inside just hearing his name. That was a great one. I love that. Good, good. So part of this is really because at OPX, we've got this whole sort of mantra of create great. And that was me. And the team just thinking about during this sort of pandemic, you know, and getting getting back to work. What, what are we doing? And uh, this sort of create great was that constant drumbeat call that everything we have to do has to be great, has to be great for us, especially for the clients. And and that I was going to ask you, but you kind of touched on it. You know, what really motivates you? What's the sort of the greatest moment? And you are really motivated. You know, three different businesses but what, what is that thing that absolutely drives you f- to be who you are and and everything else oh well thank you very much I, I think 
you know, opening up and being really honest. I think there's a bright side and there's a dark side. The positive motivators are many, thankfully. I love entering new industries, exploring new areas of business. I like starting businesses. That excites me a lot. I really love seeing my colleagues grow and thrive and watching you know, people who were once nervous and scared doing presentations and watching them develop and, and blossom I, 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 and watching their confidence grow, I think is, I just, I really, I feel a lot out of that. I love that. I, I'm fiercely competitive. I love winning. So new business is a terrible burden, but also I get mega excited about yeah, potential yeah. and the ambition with clients. I just, that's my kind of laboratory retriever moment is like, oh, we could do some cool stuff here. So, so I, I really do, I really do love that. But the sort of dark side is, and it's taken me many years to understand this, but I, I definitely am motivated by a need for stability and reliability all around me. So I think that I wake up every morning with this, and and, and look, that's deeply rooted in, in childhood situations and you know, I think it took me a good 45 years to figure that out, but I uh, didn't need a therapist. It's sort of obvious now. But that, that sort of uh, feeling of, you know, we're getting enough business in, we're looking after everybody. Um, that, that is, it, there is a burn inside of me that's, there's a flame inside of me that's always on. And that is, is the ship steady? Is everyone going to be okay? I, I, that's, that's forever. Um, that light is forever on. <laughs> Great. Right. And is there a bit of advice that you may, someone might have said to you years ago that you've sort of held, held on to and you kind of pass it on to people? Like Definitely. I mean, and quite a few. I, I think I'm, I think I'm always quoting a handful of, of, of people. My mother, Liz Dunning, who's sort of a personal friend and mentor of mine, who has spent many years in the branding world. And my husband constantly, he's a management consultant, but probably the one I, continually come back to is is one that my mom has been saying to me since I was a kid and that is you get more bees with honey and uh, you know it's 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 not something I, I've always followed <laughs> or been perfect at but generally I have found that optimism and you know having a big smile in the room has been my personal kind of main ingredient for a successful outcome um, you know, that idea that this is a challenging situation, but, you know, hey, let's all get together. And I think we can solve this problem together, I think is really important. And there are times when you, I think, hit a challenge and or somebody puts a roadblock in the way and the instinct can be to just be pissed off. And, yeah. you know, certainly earlier in my career, I think I experimented with being pissed off and it just... I think it just rarely, at least in my experience, it just rarely gets you far. And so, yes, and my mom would say, you get more bees with honey. And I, I, I love that. I love that. But there is one piece of advice that I pass on specifically to juniors as they transition from being at their computer all the time and then into the, the room with clients and into presentation mode. And that is... When you're in the room with a client or a colleague or even your boss, from the second you walk into the room, try to stop thinking about yourself. 
try to stop thinking about your presentation you're about to deliver or your wants, your needs. Try to stop thinking about yourself. And basically what happens is you become incredibly effective when you're fully in tune and connecting with the needs of other people around you. What is your client really trying to achieve? You know, are you really living that? Or are you worrying about your own cool design for your portfolio? And, you know, your boss, is that your boss a just a pain in the ass that you have to deal with and that you want to avoid? Or is it someone who's juggling and that actually when you tune in, you could actually develop your own career by finding bits of his or her day that you could actually help them with? So I think for me, the biggest advice I give is the minute you switch from thinking about yourself onto and go on to like an empathy footing, go into like a rigorous study of others, your career takes off. And I certainly think that's a big shift that juniors can make um, to becoming, you know, catapult themselves into being midweights and then seniors, any, any, in fact, at any, any area of the business. So Present your slides, yes, but do it by connecting to people in the room and caring about them. And it's really, really, it seems really more relevant than ever right now. So with all the talk, you know, we're, we've gone through a, a major crisis in the world. With all the talk of needing to love ourselves and to look after ourselves, mental health crisis everywhere throughout the pandemic, I think we've actually forgotten how to care and look at others, you know, to care deeply about other people to behave in the most human way, which is communally. And so I would say for me right now, something I'm paying a lot of attention to is, is being in the room with other people and really looking at other people and seeing other people, deeply human behavior. Yes, brilliant. We actually went on a presentation course and there's an amazing moment where is with Rada and we sat down like we are now with the studio with someone that you work with and you sit there and you say, I see you, I hear you. That's what you say. And there's, there's a connection. And as you mentioned, an empathy. And it is amazing. And then we... I love it, that. It's brilliant. And just if you do the course or just... There's a connection, and I think there's an artist who is mentioning there's an artist who would just sit there and you just look at them, and people just start crying, just talking about stuff, and that real human connection. Because, in a way, that's what we do through yeah. words and, and visuals. But if you can connect another way, wonderful. But that's that's a really good bit of advice, and especially as a junior, because we've all kind of been there where it's like. You just want to build your portfolio, you know. Mm -hmm. I was saying to Paul that, you know, the design community is so small that you've got to treat people with respect and not really piss other people off because you might not know them, but you might get a job and they might go, oh, you're David from, oh, I, yeah, I've heard about you. And you're like, oh, dear, kind of thing, you know. I think definitely yeah. an empathy is good and yeah they, as they say as they say you know be careful who you step on on the way up because you're likely to see them on the way down 
Brilliant, brilliant. And I was going to sort of mention, actually, because I think you've just entered in the owner management kind of thing with DN and Co. Yeah, is that, that right? is. is that, and how that how that works. Maybe that's part of the uh, bees and the honey and the openness and optimistic coming through. Yeah. Well, look, um, you know, again, sharing openly and widely, and I, I I love sharing this experience with with as many people as possible. I look back for is it nearly maybe even five years ago. Ben Dale, who was my co-founding partner and the original creative director of Dan Co., you know, there was a moment when he said, I'm going to hang up my boots. And we agreed in that moment, one of my favorite moments actually of my career, we agreed in that moment two things. One was Dan Co. was going to continue. And the other was that we weren't going to fall out. We were going to stay mega friends. And I think that's really unusual in, in, in business partnerships generally. And there are lots of examples of businesses that have co-founders who fall out and it's, 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 it's awful. Mm-hmm. It's divorce and it's, it's ugly and it's fighty. And, and we just looked at each other and said, we've worked, we've sat next to each other for you know, over 15 years and we want to continue to be friends. So we managed that. And then Deanne and Co. continued to go from strength to strength. And at a certain moment, you know, I was, I was the sole equity owner in, in the business and God, did it just feel wrong. It just started to feel, this is, this isn't right. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I actually have, I'm surrounded by grownups and, and these are the people who are taking the business forward. And it just felt when I heard, when I first heard about the employee ownership trust um, setup that the government had created, and this is a really interesting cross party, like all parliament supported idea it's it was created during the sort of fat cat scandals as a way to get equity you know away from the top and distributed across um, the rest of the business and it just felt right it felt better than being bought by a, a network company and it, it 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 feels very us as much as anything so it's a long road it's not an overnight thing you know i'm still here uh, 3 years later and i will be for many years to come and it just the cultural dividend now of us being an employee-owned business has been fantastic. And I, I, yeah, I don't regret it for a minute. No, it's, it's great. I think I saw you on Instagram a couple of years ago and I was like, wow, that's good on you. <laughs> and how many people are at DN Co? I always imagine you about 15. I, I, I don't know the scale of it really. Yeah. So I think the, I think we're at 35 right now. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> it's got a bit bigger and uh, you know, we are, our plans for this year take us, you know, probably to 40 if we can get there because hiring is very challenging. And, and I think we'll continue to experiment in that, you know, we, we have, we have some projects in Canada and San Francisco um, and uh, We'll, we'll start to think about, you know, do we start creating little studios abroad because it's, it's, it's harder to hire in London just now. So, yeah, so, so 35 and, 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 and growing. Wow, amazing. Yeah, you do see quite a few studios setting up little, I suppose, little micro studios. And would you ever go back to San Fran and set up DN and Co. San Fran or...? Oh, well, it's, we have, funnily enough, we're just, we, we, we've just sort of lovely project. We're going to start soon um, in a couple of lovely projects. Hopefully we've got a second one that's hopefully about to sign in San Francisco. We, 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 we've worked on one just before the pandemic, which was wonderful. And so it does seem to be springing up as, a, as, a, as, a, as an interesting patch for us. As I'm sure you know, there's just a lot of fantastic studios there. So whether Absolutely. we can sustain, 
Uh, I mean, just tons, right? Collins, manual, I mean, there are tons. And whether we could sustain a studio there or whether we just put people there as an outpost for a year or so, we'll, we'll sort of we'll sort of have to see. Toronto, I mean, Toronto's a real awakening for us. Just loads of really cool stuff going on there and New York um, as, a, as a potential base um, too. So watch this space. And I was going to just quickly ask really about new business because it's all young designers, old design. It's all great being a designer. But if you're not designing something for someone that is of notable amount you're kind of just doing it for nothing and it is really because you are as i said earlier the, the leaders the pioneers the trailblazers in the place making is that you've got a name now in that sector so people naturally go in or is it architects that pull you in it's like how do you get to that stage or how do we get there that's yeah that's a great question i think it's pretty mixed bag we we still i would say we're trying to change this by the way dave but we're still probably close to 100% inbound new business. Um, and we, so we're, we're, we're lucky in that way that we, we do get called a lot for our specific expertise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's one interesting thing. You know, there's, um, people have asked me before, should I be a generalist? Should, you know, should I be a specialist? And I would tend to fall on having at least some expertise because from a new business perspective, you can be more relevant to a particular industry and you can charge more because you know more about that area. There creates, you know, it creates barriers to entry to be able to say, I know more about this than anybody else. Trust me, don't go to them or don't go to anyone else. We're the only ones. So from a new business perspective, the specialism certainly helps. Um, now, of course, we've we've got a few different specialisms now, which is mm-hmm. also good for business because diversification is, I think, important, right? So we're also building out our wayfinding studio, which is 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 interesting. Yeah. That is 100% basically recommendations through architects. So, for example, we work with Facebook, um, the VNA, lots of really interesting clients on the wayfinding side, and those are all recommendations that have come, you know, basically through architects. So um, that's a very rich theme. But from a placemaking perspective, I think it's, I think it's word of mouth. It's we know a lot of people in government. The, the government world is pretty small. It talks. They see things that their colleagues are doing, and so others give us a buzz. But having said that, you know we're we're trying now for the first time experimenting with you know actually trying to be the masters of our own destiny and go out and grab work, contact people and say you know we think you could do this piece of work you know why don't we have a little conversation and actually it's starting to bear um, some fruit which has been which has been cool excellent excellent i was gonna also well sort of said it at the beginning and it's quite maybe a nice way to sort of round it off tech startup i mean it sounds like you're in a tech boom but then you set up is it is it showware did i pronounce that Sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I had a, had a quick look at it. it. Looks looks interesting, and that's obviously part of the urbanism and the the work you do. But was that a light bulb moment? Going, no one's doing it. Let's own it. And could you explain a bit more about that? Definitely. So, firstly, from a personal perspective, it's 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 sort of marrying some of my old tech worlds together with design, and then also a lot of exposure to the built environment. But we have, you know, I have as a, as, a, as a human and we have as Deanna Co for 16 years now, we've been doing a lot of bespoke tech work 
the, all along. So, I mean, way back in the day, you know, starting with CD-ROMs for, for any of your listeners who even know what that means anymore. Um, Dave, yeah. you're, you're probably of an age with me that you do know, but, you know, from way back doing interactive work on CD-ROMs all the way through to creating bespoke apps, we've been doing that for clients for many, many years. And what dawned on us was why are we, if, you know, for, from our client's perspective, why are we building a new piece of tech every time, huge development costs, loads of friction from a time perspective, why don't we just create a platform that we can just add our clients to the platform? And so that's been, that's been the real step change. We've, we've been, in the last couple of years, we've been creating these, these fantastic apps for leasing and sales for, for the real estate world. Really, it's, it's, um, it's prop tech, as we call it, but really it's media tech. You could use this for OPX. This is great presentation software. It doesn't do the, it's not, it's not trying to be PowerPoint or Keynote. It's actually all about being able to deliver a nonlinear presentation, either remotely or in a, in a, in an actual space, a meeting room, et cetera. And it's being able to follow up in a, in a very quick way with whatever slides you want to choose. So it's got lots of built-in tech. So it, it speaks really dearly to our client base who have certain things that they need to solve and achieve, but actually the potential of that business and that product to go beyond the real estate world is, is really real. So pretty exciting. I, I, I do need to clone myself or AKA hire <laughs> in order to make that um, develop and achieve its full potential. And we're hoping to do that more this year. Well, I think I need to sign up for it. So hopefully, yeah. Yeah, come you on, might. I'll give you a trial. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, might, you might see uh, an email come in for me. Well, it's been brilliant, first of all. And uh, second of all, it's lovely to see you. Um, and thanks for taking the time to, to do it. Such a pleasure. Real pleasure. And I was going to ask the one last question, I suppose. Well, you might have touched on it. What next? What, what, what's next for Joy? What's next for Joy? That's mm. a great question, which I think I have the answer to, actually. I am continuing with Deanna and Joe. We're very, very invested in both of those. But I'm halfway through a non-exec director diploma with the FT, which is proper back to school stuff. It's hard. It's really, it's got all my little lights turning on. It's very exciting. And I'd like to eventually do more work with other studios, other agencies, and other founders as a non-exec director. I think, I think I've got a lot to share and to contribute. I try anyway with many of my colleagues and peers in the industry, and I, I'm, I'm very keen to do that. One thing I've taken on recently is a, a trusteeship with Design Southeast, which is a phenomenal nonprofit organization and I'm enjoying I'm enjoying giving back so I think there'll be more of that in my future brilliant brilliant I, I, I was saying earlier to, to Sean that I've never met someone or known of someone with so much drive and and joy put it oh. put it mildly it's brilliant you know I've only met you met you twice but the energy as you as you sort of mentioned throughout the the podcast has has come off so it's brilliant I really that's very, I really appreciate that, Dave. That no, it, it, it's great. And uh, I wish you every success and hopefully I'll see you in person soon and hopefully come down to the exhibition space when you got the next one on. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I look forward to you coming back for the next one. 
If you'd like to find out more about APX and how we create great, then check out apx.studio. And if you'd like some daily inspiration in your life, then do visit visuel.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, head over to Spotify and give us a follow.